Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We ask that you be with us as we open up the book of Leviticus, that you guide and lead us, that your Holy Spirit will be here with us, and that we will see what you would have us to see in this study. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, Leviticus chapter 24. We're done with the feast for now. And 24, verse 1, and we'll read through the first nine verses right now. And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Command the children of Israel that they bring unto you pure oil, ol olive beaten for the, for the light, to cause the lamps to burn continually. Without the veil of the testimony in the tabernacle of the congregation shall Aaron order it from the evening unto the morning before the Lord continually, and it shall be a statute forever for your generations. And he shall order the lamps upon the pure candlestick before the Lord continually. And you shall bring, shall take fine flour, bake and bake twelve cakes thereon, two tenth deals in, shall be in one cake. And you shall set them in two rows, six on a row upon a pure table before the Lord. And you shall put pure frankincense upon each row that it may be the bread for the memorial, even an offering made by fire unto the Lord. Every Sabbath he shall set it in order before the Lord continually, being taken from the children of Israel by an everlasting covenant. And it shall be Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in the holy place. It is the most holy unto him for, of the offerings of the Lord, made by fire, by, the, by a perpetual, per, perpetual statute. All right, so we're going to look at this, uh, these two things that we're moving into. And it says, command the children, in verse 2 of Israel, that they bring pure oil, olive beaten for the light to cause the lamps to burn. And this was the oil that we talked about way back in Exodus. It was to be pure. And they say beaten here, but it literally means pressed in a mortar. They take the olives and they press it in a mortar to, to bring out the oil. And uh, it really is, a, this oil is the picture of Jesus being beaten for our sins and the Holy Spirit being sent down to us. And, and this is going to be to light the lampstand. And if you look at your picture of the temple, or if you remember your temple, that lampstand is before the veil in the holy place. Uh, it's right toward the front of your picture, almost right dead here. center as a matter of fact. Right here in the in the picture, you've got your menorah sitting in the holy place. Okay, and every day the the priest would go in and they would put oil in the in the lamps and they would make sure that they burned continually. And this oil was a very special, pure olive oil. Nothing mixed with it. No scents. No. I did not. I didn't know olive oil would burn. Well, then, mm -hmm. and it's and it, oh yeah, it'll burn. It, any oil will burn. If you put a flame to them, any of them will burn. And they have a flat, all of them have a flash point too, which is usually higher than most homes can. Yeah, that's true, because then they have those grills. Yep. Yeah, if you splash oil on your stove, you can get a fire real quick. Um, so in olive oil, is to be used for these lamps and, and is to put without the veil. What does the veil do? Does anybody remember what the veil does? Separate us from God. 
Oh, separates the holy of holy and the, and the holy place, yes, which is separating us from God or, or separating the priest from God. What was inside the veil in the holy of holies? Mercy seat. The mercy seat and? Tabernacle. Uh, no, the tabernacle is uh, the whole building. Oh. What does the mercy seat sit on? The Ark, the, uh, Ark the, of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant, okay. All right. And in the holy place, we have the menorah, we have the altar of incense, and we have the altar of showbread. Okay, so there's three things in the holy place. And so daily, the priests were going to go in and, and keep putting oil in the, the candlestick, the, the menorah. And uh, the menorah represents the light, of, the light of Jesus. Jesus said that he is the light. He said it in Matthew 5, 14 through 16, and uh, with, that we are the light. In Luke uh, 2, 32, he said that he was the light. John 1, 4 said that he was the light. John 8, 12 said that he was the light. John 9, 5 said he was the light. John 12, 46 said that he was the light. I'm reading off my notes well, just so you know. Uh, Ephesians 5, 8. 1 Peter 2.9 and 1 John 1.7 all say that Jesus is the light. Okay, he is the word. He is the light. He is the one that brings light into our life. And when we have Jesus in our life, we have illumination to show us the path we're supposed to walk on. And this illumination that God gives us is not an illumination that shows us the entire walk. It pretty much shows us, just like any lantern would, the space right in front of us. And it's amazing that God gives us just that information. He doesn't give us the information, this is what you're going to do for the rest of your life. These are the troubles you're going to find. He shines it just immediately right in front of you and says, walk by faith. And so this menorah represents the light of Christ in the tabernacle. And we're not going to go over all the tabernacle, but remember that the tabernacle has the the uh, multiple covers over it that represent the, uh, the flesh with the, with the uh, uh, what covering was it? The, the multicolored, multicolored skin. Then you had the, the, black, the black covering over that which represented our sin. Then you had the red covering which represented the, the blood sacrifice. And then you had the top one, which was the golden colored one the, that showed the Jesus that covered all of it. And um, very beautiful facility, but you were reminded all the time with the tabernacle about forgiveness and mercy and grace and redemption. All of that stuff was represented in the tabernacle. And the veil was very thick. It was a very thick separation between the holy place and, and the holy of holies. And when Jesus died on the cross, what happened in the temple? Does anybody remember? It was torn. The, the curtain was torn. The temple, the, the, the veil was torn from the top to the bottom. It wasn't torn as if man was tearing it. It would be from the bottom to the top. But God literally tore that, tore that separation wall between, between him and the rest of the world. All right. What did you say? It was red. I got, again. On the very bottom one, where it says flesh, that was multicolored. It had purple and blue and yellow and, and embroidered angels in gold, and it represents the flesh. The next one was black, and it represented our sins. 
The next one was red, representing the blood of Christ, and then the top one was the covering of Jesus over all of that. And this room is called what? The holy place. Okay. You've got the holy of holies and the holy place. And then you've got the uh, court of the Gentile, uh, the court where the sacrifices are made. All right. And then he says, you shall order the lamps upon the pure candlestick before the Lord continually. They were to never go out. And this is when the Maccabean revolt happened and Hanukkah started. They had enough pure oil to keep the lamps lit for one day. And it was going to take them a week to be able to make enough oil to replenish the oil. And that was the miracle that Hanukkah celebrates was that the one week, uh, one day's worth of oil lasted the full week. Oh, that's why that candle is like the Hanukkah. Yes, yeah. yes. The menorah is, is a symbol of Judaism, and it, the, real, the actual one is the one that sits in the temple. And it's, Hanukkah is also called the Festival of Lights, and it tells us in the, new, in the Gospels that Jesus celebrated the Festival of Lights. So he, Hanukkah has been practiced for a long time by the Jews, even though it's not one of the biblical feast days. It is something that is celebrated by the Jews and have been for a long time. It celebrates a miracle that happened in their history. All right. Any questions on the light? It ran out of oil, but it kept burning. Well, that was for Hanukkah, yeah. Because it was to be burning all the time. It was to always be in... Well, it didn't, it didn't run out of oil. The one day's supply of oil lasted a week. So it was... It never actually literally ran out. It just, it just didn't burn it as fast as it should have. And that's many years so after what we're crush, talking about. Well, because it was a special procedure. It was a special procedure for doing this. And it had to be, you know, there was all kinds of ritual behind making this very special yeah. oil. And if you remember when we were talking about Exodus, the incense, the recipe mm -hmm. for the incense was something that was to be used for nothing but God's incense. The oil was to be used just for the oil. I mean, all these things were just for the temple. They couldn't just run down to the nearest grocer and buy a, buy a, buy a quart of oil to, <laughs> to pour this stuff into this stuff. It was, well, even, even, if they, even if it was pure virgin oil, they, olive oil, they couldn't just go down to the store and buy it. So this would, is, would cooking oil, I mean, would that olive oil work in regular lamps then instead of buying that kerosene? Probably. I mean, it's going gonna, it's gonna to have a smoke, it's going to have a smoke point that's oh, a yeah. lot lower than kerosene and it's, it's expensive and it's got a very strange smell when it burns. Uh, so any oil will work on an oil, oil lamp. If you have kerosene, it probably won't work because kerosene has a different, yeah. different strike of flame point. Uh, okay, verse five. And you shall make fine flour, take fine flour, and bake twelve cakes thereof, and two tenth deals shall be in one cake. Okay, now this fine flour. Remember, we talked about this earlier. This is for the show bread, and this flour is they take the wheat. They crack the, the wheat shell and take the kernel of the wheat and then crush that, just the kernel. This isn't taking the wheat and throwing it in a millstone and grinding up the whole thing. And we talked much about this the first time we talked about the showbread. Uh, 
with wheat, what they used to do, it was a very heavy product in the old days. For us, we, don't, we sift ours and get rid of all the husks. In the old days, they kind of just threw all the wheat in there with the, the husk around the wheat, and, and they cracked it and crushed it. And what we call whole wheat bread would be pretty lightweight compared to what they used to make. Okay, uh, and we consider whole wheat bread pretty, pretty heavy stuff. And it was our whole wheat is light compared to what it used to be in the old days. But this flour would be more like what our flour is today, where it is no husk in it at all. And what they had to do was literally to make this fine flour for the show bread and the meal offering would take the wheat germ, crack it, take, you know, just as if you were doing uh, uh, sunflower seeds, you crack the shell and, and take the kernel out, put it down, and it took them a long time because wheat is not that big and you were cracking the kernel, putting it, and just taking the kernel inside the wheat for this flour. Well, pretty much by hand at this time. And that was then ground into a fine flour, which would be very much like our bleached flours today. No texture to it. It would be like talcum powder type. type. So this was the flour. It was a very special flour for these cakes. This is not what most people would do. Most people would have just taken the, the kernels of wheat, thrown them in, crushed them. And, and you know, it's not that you can't eat the, the outside of the, the wheat wheat uh, kernel, it, but it's not what you use for the showbread and, and the meal offering. Mortar and pestle to crush it, or it doesn't say that it used mortar and press, pre, uh, pestle for this one. But they crush it now. But they would crush it. They would crush it. It could be crushed under the wheel and everything. It didn't oh, matter. It didn't matter how you crushed this. Uh, the beaten, the pressed oil was a different case. It was. Ta it talked about putting it in a pestle and... and and, and pressing it. And one, sometimes they would put them in big barrels and then press down uh, and then screw it down and press it and press it and press it and press it. Uh, and when you go to the store and you buy pressed oil, that's what they've done to it. They've pressed the oil out of the, of the item. Uh, but you're going to take this fine flour and make 12 cakes. And remember, when we studied about it earlier in Leviticus and in Exodus, they talked about adding oil to these cakes and making just unleavened cakes. And there's 12 cakes, each with two tenths of deals. Now, I can't really find anything about how big a deal was at the moment, but it's, but it's a good amount of flour in each of these, if I remember correctly. Uh, I couldn't find the, let me see if I can find it one quickly here because there is a place in my Bible that gives me weights and I couldn't find it earlier today and we're not going to worry about it but anyway these, these cakes are pretty pretty good sized cakes They're, there's 12 of them and why is there 12 does anybody remember one for each tribe, one for each tribe which is and they're going to set them up in six rows, six on a row, and a pure table before them. And this is talking about the table of showbread. And it's uh, just to the right of the menorah and up that it shows it. Now they show, and every picture I've ever seen shows a stack of showbread. The scripture says that it's rows, and it literally means rows. So I don't think it's a stack. Well, they put six in a stack, you know, two stacks of six. But it, I think it was laid out kind of on top of each other so 
and they wore some kind of a round bread bread cake thing, and they would sit on this table of showbread for one week, all right, and they would put frankincense, pure frankincense on them, which is a bitter, herb? it's a bitter, bitter herb uh, that they would put on it, and, oh. on all of them. Not just over the whole pile. Yeah, I don't, that's why I don't think it was on a pile. I really don't, because this says row, and it very, it doesn't say yeah. make a stack, it says make, make two rows, six in each row. Right. So I think they went front to back and, and made two rows. Those are stacks in the picture. Every picture I see always shows it as stack, and I don't think that's what the scriptures describe. Yeah. Every pic every picture will show you a stack and with the frankincense so it doesn't stick to each other. So and every Sabbath they shall put new ones in there. And the old ones are taken out, and it's a, and they're and they're to be for one for each of the tribes of Israel, and these showbreads were eaten by Aaron and his sons by the priest. This was something they would eat at the end of the week when they put the new ones out. They would come into the holy place and they would eat the 12, 12 showbreads. So they left it out for twelve days. Yeah, no, one, six, one week. Six, yeah, one week, Sabbath, Sabbath to Sabbath. Every Sabbath they'd put them out, so seven days. Every seven days they'd put a new, new one out, a new, new set of 12. And Aaron and his sons, and God said, this is the most holy. Now the showbread represents, because it's pure, pure ground-up uh, flour, it's representing Jesus and us as a church again, because Jesus said, in many places said, I am the bread, okay? Mm -hmm. And the bread was consumed by the priest, which were the ones that were serving him. And so God, God has put us in a place where we consume him and we are his servants, in this case, picturing us as the priests. And it tells us that he was the bread of life in Mark 14, 22, Luke 22, 19, and John 6, 31 through 34, and also 48 through 58 on John, 30, uh, John 6. And so rather than bounce around all these verses, you can write them down, look them up, you know, <laughs> listen to them later. When, you know, they're, but these things in the temple were to represent Jesus. Okay? And we, we're not going to go a long, long time over all this because we, we spent a long time on this. Uh, we went through this in Exodus. But... Jesus is the menorah. He's the light. He is the showbread that sits. The bread sits on the golden altar of the showbread waiting to be consumed by his servants. So this is all a picture. And then we have the golden incense. And the golden incense is the one incense altar is the one place in Revelation we'll, we'll see that it is the prayers of the saints on the golden incense, the incense altar. And that's the one right before the veil on your picture. We're not going to talk about that at the moment, but there was oil that was placed on that as well. And I'll point out the incense altar so right the, before the veil. The unleavened bread would be like Christ's body? Well, the showbread represents Jesus feeding us. Yes. It is an unleavened bread, but it's, it's literally called the showbread. Uh, and if you remember when David, yep, when David went to was running from his life for Saul and he went to the temple and he, go, and he asked for food. He goes, well, we don't have anything but the showbread, but it's unlawful for any but the priest to eat. 
And the priest said, but if, you, if you're men and you have kept yourself pure and clean and away from women, you can, you can take these. And David told him, yes, we've done that. And they, he ate the showbread, which was unlawful for David to do. So, uh, because it is to be eaten only by the priest. So we're, we're seeing it. We're back to getting into the temple, back into the temple ser uh, service going on. And how many times a year did they go into the Holy of Holies? Once a year. Once a year on the Day of Atonement. And they would, and who would go in? One lucky guy. <laughs> One fortunate guy. The high pure. priest. Oh, the high priest. One. The high priest. Yeah. And that only after he'd made sacrifices and confessed all of his sins. And, What's that called? Huh? What's that celebration called? Uh, Yom Kippur. And in his, the priest would bring the blood into the mercy seat, and he'd sprinkle the blood of the of the sacrifice onto the mercy seat, and hope that he didn't die, wasn't struck dead by walking into God's presence. Uh, I have not been able to verify it, but there is one author who's done the research, and he says that at, on at least six occasions, the high priest died on, in in the holy of holies and had to be dragged out because they put a rope around his ankle and they had to drag him out. Now, I've never been able to verify that, but there's one researcher who, who says that is true. So it was a job that was a great honor to the high priest, but they went into this situation with great uh, trepidation. They were very worried about going in because if they weren't completely pure before God, they might not come back out. And that was always their worry. And uh, so this is the, the tabernacle. He just went in there and sprinkled the blood. He sprinkled the blood on the mercy seat. The mercy seat. And the mercy seat is called the seat of propitiation. And what does propitiation mean? We just studied that. It means that the anger Not has been satisfied. Okay. okay. Oh, <laughs> Trying try to make us read. I know some of these words are big, but I'm honest to, when you see these words in the scripture, you need to know what they mean. And it's a very critical word. Propitiation means that God's anger toward us was satisfied by the sacrifice of Jesus. Okay? And he is no longer angry with us. We are in fellowship. We are in friendship with him. One of the pastors I was listening to last night on the way home, he made a statement that really made me think. He said, we will treat other people the way we believe God treats us. Okay? We will treat other people the way we believe God treats us. That means if we think that God is this big guy upstairs going to beat us over the head every time we do something wrong, we're going to treat other people this, that way. If we truly believe that God loves us and has forgiven us of our sins, then we're going to love other people and be forgiving of them. And the more I thought about that, the more I realized that what he was saying is true. People may know in their head that God has forgiven them. And I've, and I've had this happen. Every time I talk about forgiveness and God forgiving you and that we need to learn to forgive ourselves, I almost always will have somebody say, well, I just can't forgive myself. That tells me that they don't believe that God forgives them. And that's been my answer always. If you can't forgive yourself, you really don't believe that God has forgiven you. And it reflects that you don't forgive others easily. If you really truly believe that God forgives and that he loves you just the way you are, you will treat people that way. 
because you know that you're being treated that way. If you think that God's just up there waiting for you to do wrong so he can punish you, then you're going to be looking at everybody waiting for them to do wrong so that you can criticize them. I've got a stick at the house. He could use to beat me. <laughs> I don't All right, so in, in chapter 24 now, we turn a corner here from the Levites into an, to a historical event that they're talking about. So at verse 10, and the son of an Israelitish woman whose father was an Egyptian went out amongst the children of Israel and his son and the, this son of the Israelitish woman and a man of Israel strove together in the in the camp and the Israelitish woman's son blasphemed the name of the Lord and cursed and they brought him unto Moses and his mother's name was Shelomith and the daughter of Dim Dipri of the tribe of Dan, and they put him in a war, in ward, that the mind of the Lord might be showed to them. Because we want to stop there with just the event. So we have an individual. Number one, we have a marriage between an Israelite and an Egyptian. Ooh. Okay, so we're already looking for problems. Okay, we've already got a problem situation set up. You got an Israel Israelite who's supposed to be following God, and an Egyptian who, hopefully, at this point, is following God. But the fact that his son is going to blasphemy God and 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 curse tells us that he is not, at least in his home, raising his son as a Israelite to honor God's name. All right, so that we've got a problem being set up, and this is one of the things we know from Scripture. Any time we have a marriage between a Christian, or in this case, Jew and non-Jew, or a Christian and a non-Christian, there will be problems. Mm -hmm. It's a guarantee. Because the non-Christian, or in this case, the non-Jew, is not going to honor God, is not going to teach their children to follow God. And there's always this tension between the two, two spouses on how do we raise this kid. I think that still is now that way. It's still this way. We're told very clearly, do not be unequally yoked. I personally would not do a marriage where where somebody is a Christian and the other one is a non-Christian. They've been saying, well, I can change them. That's what they always say. Yeah. But I would not perform that. I would not perform that 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 wedding. They would have to become a Christian and they would have to prove to me that they have become a Christian, not just saying they have so they can marry this yeah. Christian person. Uh, but this is where I stand on that. You know, they're not to be unequally yoked. The Bible says so. And I'm not going to marry somebody who's unequally yoked. And so this is critical that we stand on God's standard. You know, I will, I will have mixed races. Doesn't bother me. Different countries doesn't bother me. I would still talk to them because there's issues in that kind of uh, different countries and different ways of thinking but would definitely not marry anybody who's unequally yoked and very critical because this is the situation you're seeing a mixed religious organ uh, thing and this child of theirs goes out and starts fighting or arguing with another another Israelite and it says that he blasphemies the name of the Lord. Okay? And blasphemy literally means to curse, to, to make despicable, to, to perforate, to stab. Okay? 
And well, does that mean too that they think that their God lasts? It just means that he's not honoring God. In a minute, it's, he's yeah. not honoring God's name. Yeah. He's, he's making God's name common. He's dragging it through the dirt. And that could be using it incorrectly. We, it doesn't tell us exactly how he blasphemed God's name, but he has. And then he goes on to make a curse. And this doesn't just mean using bad language. This is in the name of God, and he probably was using the Egyptian gods at this point. I, I, you know, I curse you that this is going to happen or something. You know, it's, this is, this is a, a, he's invoking God's name or the Egyptian God's name to pronounce a curse on this man. And so this is a big deal. And we talk about this often, but what does it mean to blasphemy the name, the name of the Lord? What does it mean, the name of the Lord? I want us to try to remember what this means. It means that they don't believe in God. It's more than that. Okay. It is using his name in vain. But when I when I speak about name, I want us to really understand that name is the reputation and all that the name stands for. Okay? It isn't just saying say using God's name in, in a in a vain way. That's part of it. God says don't use his name in vain. But to take his name and say, when I say I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, in the, in the name of Jesus Christ, I'm going to follow him. I'm invoking everything that he stands for, all of his reputation. Okay? And my example is always, if you do something, if, if you're sent out by the governor or the president of, a, of the United States to do something, and you say, in the name of you know, the governor of Arizona, you're invoking all of their reputation, all of their authority, all of their rank, and you better be doing it right. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you're dragging that name into the dirt. My dad always told us that, that we have a reputation to maintain by the name. Okay, well, you are Wells's, that means something, and he, and he drove it into her head that that being a Wells meant that you were a hard worker, you were dependable, you know. And this is what it means. A name means something. Whether it's good or bad, it means something. You know, towns, you know, especially small towns, will have somebody's name. And when you say that name, you go, oh, that's the town drunk. Or you, or you say that name, and oh, that's the, sh you know, that's, the, that's the sheriff. You just know the name. You know the family. And when you hear that name, it's like, oh, I wouldn't hire one of those wouldn't hire one of those family because they're all terrible workers. Or I would hire any one of their family because they're, they're, you're guaranteed to get a good worker. Okay, that's what we mean. When God says anything done in his name, he's talking about all the reputation that's supposed to go behind his name in, in, in honor. And it says this man blasphemed the name of God. And... It's kind of been interesting because his mother's name meant peaceful, and he's being a very stri he's striving with his with his with his uh, fellow citizen, and they says that they put him in a ward, they confined him, they put him in a tent in confinement until they could figure out what to do with him. They didn't know. They knew that it was against the Ten Commandments to take God's name in vain. They knew that they weren't supposed to pronounce a curse, but there had not been a penalty named for this. So we're going to find out how serious God took this issue. Verse 13, 
And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Bring forth him that hath cursed without the camp, and let all that heard him lay their hands on his head, and let the congregation stone him. And they shall speak unto the and you shall speak unto the children of Israel, saying, Whosoever curses his God shall bear his sin, and he that blasphemies the name of the Lord, he shall surely be put to death, and all the congregation shall surely stone him, as well the stranger as he that is born in the land, when he blasphemies the name of the Lord, shall be put to death. This is serious. God is saying that his name is so holy that if you blasphemy it or curse it, it was worthy of death. And this is pretty strong. You know, God's standards for, for capital punishment were a lot higher than any country out there. And we've looked at this. You know, adultery is a capital offense. Uh, kidnapping was a capital offense. Uh, um, using God's name was a capital offense. Working on the Sabbath was a capital offense. These murder was a capital offense. God was very serious. If you hurt the congregation, you were in trouble. And this is some place where we're at uh, nowadays where we tell our kids, you know, and we see it with parents all the time. And when I worked with the kids, you'd have some kid that was misbehaving. Mm -hmm. You'd go to their parents and say, we're having a problem with little Jay. And you'd hear, not my kid, my kid's an angel. And I'd go, no, your kid's not an angel. Your kid's a sinner just like all others. And he's acting up. And if you don't want to take care of it, he's not allowed to come back to Sunday school. But we see too many people that want to defend their children from the consequences of sinful acts. And they're not helping their kids at all. They're teaching their kid they can do whatever they want, get away with whatever they want, and that nobody can tell them what to do. And it's getting worse in our generation as people are doing what is good in their own eyes and protecting their own family and, and moving forward in all of this. And God is saying that the whole congregation was to take them outside the camp the ones that heard him, the ones that were giving the testimony, were to place their hands on him and basically say, yes, we heard this. And Ellen, the camp was to stone this person. And one of the pastors I was listening to was explaining that the reason for the, the whole camp stoning him was that each one, as they had to throw these stones, would, be, would, would have to be thinking, could I have done something to keep this from, to have helped this person not get to this point in their life because the whole camp was responsible and we've gotten away from that. In the old days, there used to be, you know, even before I was born, but you hear these people in Loretta's age bracket that say, you got in trouble, you probably got spanked by the person who saw you do this, and then you knew you were going to get spanked when you got home as well. Mm -hmm. Or at least chewed out by, you know, chewed out multiple times, you know. But you knew you were in trouble when you did it, and your parents weren't going to go, how dare, how dare they discipline you? It was, well, now you're going to get my <laughs> discipline. And we've drifted so far away from that. And I can understand it to a degree with especially the evil that runs rampant in this world. I wouldn't want others disciplining my kids per se. But we've also gone so far the other way that everybody is afraid to discipline these kids, period. And God is saying, my people, my people need to be able to bring discipline and help one another and lift up one another and edify one another and 
and be able to help each other. And this is not that we're out there judging one another and say that they're doing bad, but when we see somebody that we love and we care for going down the wrong path, and we say that we love them and we're not going to say anything to them about walking down the wrong path, we've got a problem. We've got a problem. If we truly love somebody and we watch them willfully walking down a path that leads to sin, and we don't say something, do we truly love them? You know, do we truly love them if all we're going to do is let them go off and do sin? And I don't say, and again, I'm not saying be critical of everybody and judge everybody and everything they do, but we all know that there's certain paths that people get on and, and it's leading to the wrong. It's one thing just to fall into a sin and, be, and, and, and have a sin. But when you see somebody going down something that's going to keep them in a sin for a long period of time and each day and falling into the same sin, we need to be able to say something, hey, you know, I really care about you. You're making bad decisions. And same thing we do with our children. You know, you've been making bad decisions or our grandkids or our nieces and nephews and, you know, whatever it might be in our life. You know, you're making decisions that are headed the wrong way. And very critical for all this. All the witnesses were to be participants in this stoning. And as we said before, when, when we talk about stoning, and you see the stoning is usually displayed on TV, and they're throwing these little things that look like baseballs at, at people. And that's not what stoning was. They threw them in a shallow pit, and they picked up boulders. I mean, they're picking up you know, two and three foot rocks and throwing them in down into this pit at these people and basically burying them under a lot of rock. That was what it meant to be stoned. It wasn't these little rocks that they were throwing yeah, at I you. Any of these rocks that hit that person on the head would have, would have knocked them out or killed them. And then they were buried under these things. So, I mean, this was not, you know, it's not these little tiny rocks you know, that we, we picture that the TV movies always show you, you know, being stoned. They're throwing these baseball things at you and, and you're getting hit on the head until one of them knocks you out, you know. No, these were, these were monsters that they threw at you. These were not just tiny things. And it says that whosoever curses his God shall bear his sin. When they went to a capital crime, that person was bore their sin. And you had to have two or more witnesses. And those witnesses had to agree in their testimony. Okay. They could not be one saying one thing and another saying another thing and another, you know, you had, they had to be in agreement. Not so agreed, you know, not so agreed that every single word of theirs was the same because then, then, then that day and as in today, if somebody says exactly the same thing in their testimony, we accuse them of colluding. You, you have gotten together to put your testimony together because you cannot have 100% the same testimony. Uh, you can't have 100% the same details. Just, uh, you know, it's not that they're lying, but there's just there's certain things that just escape you. You know, two people can tell you the same story, and you know that it's the same story, even though you know. They it together. Yeah, one of one of them says, well, they they went over they went over to the post office, and the other one says, well, they went out here to second, they took a left, and they ended up at the post. You know, you know the post office and you go, okay, you know, they both said the same thing. And one goes a whole lot more detailed than the other. You know, one mentioned that they went by car and the other one, you know, you didn't know how they got there, but, you know, 
they just got there and you know that they're both telling the truth, they're just not giving you the same level of detail. Uh, and this was important that these things were going to be there and it says that they were going to bear their own sin. And the people that witnessed in, in the Egyptian, in, in the, excuse me, the Israelite courts, the ones who bore witness had to be participants in the execution if it was a capital crime because their, their words were putting this person to death, so they had to actually then have a hand in that death. And it was the idea that if you were perjuring yourself, that you would feel guilty for having killed, you know, walking in and killing. And if they found that you had perjured yourself, you were killed. <laughs> you received their punishment if you had perjured yourself. So it was a pretty serious uh, judicial system in this time. Verse 16, And he that blasphemes the name of the Lord, he shall surely be put to death, and all the congregation shall surely stone him. As well the stranger as he that is born in the land, he that blasphemes the name of the Lord shall be put to death. And this is a phrase that we've seen before, that God has one set of laws for the, for the Jews and for the strangers. You could The Jew couldn't just hire a stranger to blaspheme God for him. It would be you know, if the stranger, the person visiting, blasphemed God or cursed God's name, he or she would have been put to death as well. And it was the idea that there's just one law. Verse 17, we're going to read through the end of the chapter here. And he that kills any man shall surely be put to death. He that kills a beast shall make it good, beast for beast. And if a man cause a blemish in his neighbor... As he hath done, so shall it be done to him. Breach for breach, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. As he, that, as he hath caused the blemish in a man, so shall it be done unto him. He that kills a beast, he shall restore it. And he that kills a man, he shall be put to death. You shall have one manner of law, as well for the stranger, and as for your own country, for I am the Lord your God. And Moses spoke to the children of Israel that they should bring him Bring forth him that had cursed out of the camp and stone him with stones. And, and the children of Israel did as the Lord commanded. So here we're going to see the, the full, you know, they brought them up. They've, they've had all kinds of rules up to this point. Some, some things that have been already told, you know, like the sexual sins we've already seen were worthy of death and or being put out of the camp. And so now we're going to see this. It goes in verse 17. If you kill somebody, you will surely be put to death. All right. And this was the command that was there. If you had, if you killed somebody, and this included accidental killing or anything else, you were put to death. Now, with an accidental killing, you know, you're you're throwing rocks, you know, and you accidentally hit somebody, and you really weren't aiming to it. Once they were in the promised land, they had sanctuary cities, cities of refuge, and basically, you had a foot race. Could you get there before the person? person you killed family catches you because if they caught you they could they could sit you know make the accusations and, and stone you if they made it to the sanctuary city the, the the city of refuge there would be a court case and if they really was proven that you didn't do it on purpose you didn't have malice you you weren't angry at this person it was truly an accident then you had to live in the city of refuge until the high priest died okay so you could have been there for a year, or you could have been in there for 60 years. You didn't know you had to stay in that city till the high priest died. And 
that was your, your city of refuge. You could not leave that city if you accidentally killed somebody. All right? And it says if you killed a beast, you were to make it good. Basically, you would swap. If you killed somebody's cow, you would swap them on your cows for their cow. And it had to be an equal swap. So the elders would be checking this out. You weren't going to kill his, his prize cow, his prize milking cow, and give him the runt, the, runt of your, the runt of your herd. They'd go, no, that's not beast for beast. You give him the best cow you have, and you get the dead best, the old, <laughs> dead, the old dead best cow. You know, uh, so it was equal punishment. And then we get into this uh, manner of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. It says, if a man cause a blemish in his neighbor, he that is done, done so shall it be done to him. We call it breach for breach. What's a breach? That is any, that literally a break, fracture, hurt, oh, bruise. Oh. It's pretty much generalized, any, any bruise or, or cut. Uh, breach for breach, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. As he hath caused the blemish in a man, so it shall be done to him again. So, this means if you were using a whip on somebody and you cut their forearm, they would use a whip to cut your forearm. If you used a club to bruise his temple, they would use a club to bruise your temple. Now, this sounds awful to us in the 20th century and in our Christian mentality. But, and I've explained this over and over, and we're going to explain it because we're reading it. In this day... If you hurt me, you know, accidentally or on purpose, I was perfectly within my right to go to you, kill you, and take all of your stuff into my possession if I was strong enough to do it. Okay? So while this sounds brutal and terrible, this is quite a restriction for these people. Okay? You hurt me, I can't go in and just beat you to a pulp and take, and take everything from lynch you. you. Lynch you. Lynch you or, or, you know, I can only do what you did to me. Okay? So this is quite a restriction to them in that day. Now Jesus is going to take and move it even further down. He's going to take it from an eye to an eye, an eye for an eye, and say, no, I'm going to say you're to forgive them. You're to, you're to not even go, you know, not even go so much as to require revenge. And the scriptures go through that God, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, and it's all through the, you know, the prophets. So it is a developing thing that Jesus takes to its completion. But at this point, as brutal as it sounds to our ears and our, you know, and we think it's so bad and it's terrible that, you know, hey, if you took a tooth, I'm to knock your tooth out. If you blinded me in one eye, I'm to poke your eye out. Uh, and God is very strict on this too. He says, don't take and be merciful to this person. If they've harmed you, you are to give them because he doesn't want people thinking they can get away with harming people. This was done this was monitored very carefully by the elders. And so and but you're right because if you did more then you're now punished. Okay? So you're going to be very careful about how you do this punishment. If you're looking at bruising somebody and not breaking them, you're, you're not going to look to hit them real, real hard and cause the biggest bruise that you can have because if you accidentally break their arm, then, they can break yours. then you're in trouble. You're going you're to be in big trouble. Uh, so, but this, like I say, to our ears, this sounds like a terrible, awful thing, but it is really one that says, 
we are limiting your vengeance. We are making you be limited and measured in your, your vengeance. And this was a time when if you stole something, then they would just come in and steal everything that you had if they were strong enough and, and feel justified. You harmed me, I'm really gonna harm you. Okay, so. In a way, I think that's good because then they would have less. Right. But the problem with that is then that person goes out and he gets he gets a bunch of people and he comes back and he does this way there is a a measured response that says you are only getting back what you done what you have done and you're there's not going to be this you know vengeance idea because you and like I say, when you struck back at this person, you're going to be very measured in how you do it because you're not going to want to do more than they did because then you're going to be in trouble if you did more. So the, your, the, the return punishment is actually usually going to be less than what was done to you just because you're not going to take the chance of doing more, more harm and, and having problems with it. It says, he that kills a beast, he shall restore it. And again, that's just a repeat of before. And this is God's way of doing things. If you, if you damage something that belonged to somebody else, then God said you were to make it good. Okay? You, you, you killed their animal, you borrowed their animal, and you killed it by negligence or on purpose, then you had to give them an animal in return. Uh, you're throwing stones around, your, around the field, and you hit their sheep, and you kill their sheep. You owe them a sheep. Uh, and so this is, again, measured response and responsibility. You did something, it's going to cost you. Uh, and if you remember, when you stole something, you paid back what you stole plus 20%. Okay? Yeah, they, well, actually, that was part of their, that was punishment in there, too, was to lose your hand. Uh, so, but God said there's going to be retribution. You know, you're going to get back what was lost, and that person's going to be penalized for what they took. If they killed something, then they were going to replace it. If they couldn't replace it, then they would become a debtor, and they would be a servant for, for up to seven years and, uh, to, until they paid off what it is that was lost. And, and it says, if you kill a man, you will or shall be put to death. Okay, so again, this is reiteration. And this is, again, the violence. You've got to remember this is a very violent time. When people were hurt, they would strike back. And this is God saying, no, you cannot go out and kill somebody and get away with it. You cannot just say, they hurt me, I'm going to go and hurt them really bad. I'm going to kill them and take their whole family and servants as, as my slaves because of what they did to me. They broke my fingernail and I'm going to go kill them. Okay, and this is, this, you know, we laugh about that. It might not be quite that bad, but you broke my finger, and now I'm going to kill you, and your, and your whole family is going to become my servants. And that was not uncommon in this day and age. And God's saying, no, here, you're going to temper what you're doing. You're going to be watching it. And he says, you will have one law, one manner of law for the stranger as for your people. And this is, going, he was going back into the days of the Israelites under Egypt. He's going... And basically, there's other places where he said, remember, you were slaves where, they, where the Egyptians could do just about what they wanted and the Jews had all kinds of laws 
that applied just to them being Jews. And God's saying, no, whoever is in your country, you all follow the same laws. And the English and the American justice system is supposedly under this same system. We all follow the same laws and rules. Now, they're not always applied evenly and correctly, but we do all have one set of laws. And this is what God says. You only have one set of laws. You're not going to make two sets of laws. This is for those who are citizens, and these are for the aliens. Uh, and then it says, Moses spoke to the children of Israel and all these things, that they should bring him out, that could curse the, out of the camp, and they were to stone him with stones, and the children of Israel did as, though, as Moses had commanded. So they followed through. And I'm, to be honest, I'm glad I don't live in this period of time where I have to walk the people out to the, out of the camp and throw rocks at them. Uh, I don't know that I could have ever done that, but, but I also don't think like they did back then either. So it's, uh, it's like survival. It's a survival, but it's also the purity. God is imposing the purity on the camp. When we talked about leprosy, when somebody would be sick with leprosy, they were put out of the camp, so the rest of the camp didn't spirit, didn't suffer that disease. Uh, <clears throat> in this case, we're talking about a spiritual disease. God doesn't want the spiritual diseases to spread around the camp either. And this guy was doing it outside the camp. No, no, they're taking him outside oh, the camp. So the punishment was outside the camp. You didn't stone him inside the camp. Oh, okay. You carried him, you took him outside and stoned him. But this is God's way of saying, my community is going to be pure. My people are going to be pure. They're not going to be infected by sin. And we're seeing it in our day and age as sin is being accepted. We're seeing how it's going rampant and really ruining our communities, our cities, our towns, soon to be our states and soon to be our, our country. Why? Because we have not kept our towns, our communities, pure. Even a stranger now, I'll say, if they use the Lord's name in vain, I say, please watch your mouth. Don't use the Lord's name in vain. And, and I don't know what, what comes, Holy Spirit comes over me, and I correct people when I hear that kind of language. I don't need it. I don't really want to hear it. It isn't good. Yeah. I don't care. <laughs> I don't care where they're at. I, I, in my car, especially, I don't care. <laughs> I'll correct them now. Oh, yeah. All right, let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for everything. We lift up Loretta, who's dealing with this eye issue that she's had, that she has. We ask you to be with her and help her. Lord, we, we think of Amy on her on our trip. We think of Annie, who's having just all kinds of troubles with depression and sickness and all that's going on in her life. Lord, we just ask you to lift these people up and and help them in their in their lives and just give us guidance as we leave today in your son's name amen